You see, Joan, it's all disconcerting. What are you going to do? Other side, I don't know. I <laughs> see better over there because it's not so drafty. Okay, I got it. That's why I always pick a Oh, no. <laughs> well, it, even with the, with the cloud cover, I guess it's not really cold. Cold. They're still in the mid to high sixties here. Well, my car says it's seventy Okay. It is. It is the bewitching hour. Let us let us pray. Bless the Lord who has caused all holy scriptures written for our learning. Grant to men such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them. That by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which has given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, before we jump in these chapters, it's probably good to reset where we are, because I think, again, Revelation will run away from you in a hurry if you're not aware of what we're talking about. Um, and specifically some assumptions of the scriptures that we don't necessarily understand just reading the, the scriptures at face value. Um, not the least of which is that um, the idea of the creation, we talked about this at morning prayer this morning, at the end of um, Revelation where John will talk about, we'll hear about a new heavens and a new earth. And people would, oh, well, they're going to destroy this one and make a new one. And that's really not in the biblical language what a new heavens and a new earth looks like. It, it, if we think back to, uh, if we look through the scriptures, God's creation, um, it, 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 and there's there's actually um, and a whole approach to Genesis that talks about the creation as being um, God creating a, a cosmic sanctuary, a place for him to dwell in. And, but in Genesis, then the creation that was good, we, we discovered that it, you know, it was marred by sin in Genesis three. So because of sin, God, the, the whole world is no, I mean, God dwells everywhere, but in that sort of intimate uh, relationship with his, uh, the crown of his creation, uh, man, and then from man to the creation was not possible. So God began to make covenants and uh, with Noah and Abraham and finally with Moses. And so be, because sin impacted the entire creation, the, the various covenants that God makes have the sense of new creations. God creating new, a new thing in a in a world that is otherwise disordered and sinful apart from Him. So, especially on Mount Sinai, that we would understand that the creation that that, that God has entered into a covenant relationship and therefore has created a new, as it were, world. And that new world was symbolized by the temple, which outlined how God and human beings interacted in such a way that God could live with them. It involved sacrifices, it involved. Um, so when we, when we get to the content of Revelation, what we've said throughout our study here is that this is the end of the old covenant of that creation. Not the entire world, physical structure, but the but the um, the uh, world order in which God primarily dealt with humanity through a covenant relationship with Israel, localized in the temple. That's what's because God has come to His people and has been rejected by them. 
um, he is going to judge the old covenant, and there's going to be a new covenant, a new a new creation. And so that language is, and, and, and Pentecost in particular on Sunday highlights this because in the first creation, God created by his word and the Holy Spirit. He spoke, and the Spirit moved over the waters to, to bring to pass uh, what God's word had commanded. And because of the rebellion against the word of God, the very word itself became flesh and dwelt among us. And then we're now in the ascension. He's going to send the spirit. So the creation is the same pattern. But it's not the entire world. It's only those who repent and believe and receive the word and therefore receive the spirit become part of the new heavens and the new earth that God is creating. And that's you won't understand the language of Revelation unless we understand that. Because when he's talking about the earth, the sea being burned up, people think he's going to torch like the whole globe. And that's not the symbolic language doesn't work like that. The creation is localized in his covenant relationship with his people. And so to, to get back to um, our chapters today, because we'll come back to that. That's in later chapters. Um, we're getting two beasts today, a beast from the sea and a beast from the land. And um, we'll draw these out as we talk about them, but they are pretty clearly um, Rome as the beast from the sea uh, that, that, that in, in the imminent context here, because this beastly imagery in the Old Testament referred to a lot of pagan empires. And the beast from the land is pretty clearly Israel, apostate Israel, who is co co um, cooperating with this beastly power to persecute God's new covenant people. And we'll go through a series of passages. But, but if you really read Acts, once you get that your mind around this conspiracy of apostate Israel and the Gentiles, it begins on Good Friday. The Jewish leadership hands him over to Pilate who sentences them to death. And throughout Acts, when St. Paul is preaching the gospel throughout the, the Roman world, you'll get this. He preaches the local synagogue. Some people don't like it, don't like what he says, and they hand him over to the authorities, and he gets... So there's, there's this alliance that here is, is epitomized by these the, the, the cooperation of these two beasts. And when we get later on in Revelation... We'll see the what what is called the whore of Babylon on the back of the beast. I'm going to explain to you why this is an image of New Testament Israel, right straight out of language of prophets. But it's it's this it's so so um, I want to throw that out there. Now let's walk through the text and kind of unpack how this is so. So Revelation chapter 13 verse one. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now, we should note here that this is the exact language used in chapter 9 to describe um, text right um, the the star of uh, actually it might have been 12 yeah the, the, the yeah I got my verse on there that um, yes 12 two that's right seven heads and ten horns that's describes the dragon Satan in 12 two now one of the things to draw to really pay attention to this because this parallel is going to be drawn out more and more. So you have the dragon with seven heads and uh, ten horns. And now you have the beast with the same image. Therefore, it's in the image of the dragon. And you have a lot of biblical themes because um, God's people, of course, God created man in his image. So 
Adam was to take dominion on earth in the image of God. But now the, the perverted rulers in the disordered, sinful world, the world, are ruling in the image of the dragon, the evil one. And it's a parallel symbolism, and we'll draw out the Trinitarian nature of that as we get to the beast from the land as well. So uh, we should note that that's... Now the sea, on a beast rising up out of the sea, and there's a whole history in the Bible of the beast from the sea. Uh, he, he made great sea creatures in Genesis uh, chapter 1, verse 21. And these are tanim in the Hebrew, and you can... They, they appear otherwise in other places with, sometimes they're just creatures, but sometimes they have quasi, uh, you know, demonic associations. Part of the point of Genesis in the creation narrative, when it says God created the Tanim, is that in a lot of pagan religion, they were evil spirits. The beast was, was and Genesis just says God created them. And so God, and this always lets us know that God's in control of them, even when they seem uncontrolled. And that's a central theme of, Re of Revelation. The beasts will seem like they're not, they're out of control, out of God's purview, but Revelation makes it very clear to us that they're not. So the sea in the scriptures is a symbol of, it, it's a symbol of evil. Um, because of its chaotic, unpredictable depth, and, and it's not that you know there, there's plenty of places where God made the oceans and they're beautiful, and so don't don't. Uh, but it's why when we get in Revelation later on, we hear about the new creation. Saint John will say, "And there was no sea, because evil has been done away. Not that you don't get to walk along the beach and enjoy the ocean." That's not what John is saying. Um, so, um, one place to see, and, and, and also the idea of the abyss was at the bottom of the sea. And so, when a beast comes out of the sea, it comes out of this cauldron of evil. A place where we get this image in the New Testament, I send you this reference with the notes, uh, when Jesus casts out the legion. Um, first of all, just before he cast out the legion, in Luke's gospel, he had been on the boat and had calmed the sea. And calming the sea for Jesus had a sense of, I have power over the unpredictable undulations of the, of the, of the source of evil, the sea. And then the legion said, says, uh, don't cast us into the abyss. Some translations call it the bottomless pit, but it's the abyss. And Jesus, they want to go in the swine. So he sent the swine, the swine run down into the sea, metaphorically into the abyss. So, so Jesus is there showing his power over the evil. But the ascension of a beast from the sea, therefore, has this biblical backdrop. Sea is the, as a cauldron of evil, beast from the sea, now coming out, looking a lot like the dragon. Ruling in a beastly way, ruling not justly, but ruling to maintain power for its own sake. That's what characterized ravenous, beastly rulers. That's why the image is of the beasts. Not as heads, a blasphemous name. Um, we note that the uh, high priests wore uh, the Lord's name on their heads. So there's, there's, a, there's a, another correspondence there. And we've also uh, been told that, that God writes his new name on us. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. It's interesting uh, that when Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, of course, one of the temptations was all the kingdoms I'll give you in exchange for worship. Of course, we understand in the full light of the scriptural revelation, as Jesus did, that that was a very limited authority. 
that the dragon give authority to rule for a while, only to be judged and destroyed eventually. So all of the stuff, when we when we say like later on, but when we had this in Revelation 12, the devil's come down to you having great wrath. He knows his time is short. That's always the psychology of evil. And that's why people say, well, I don't understand this heinous crime. There's no rationale to it. There's that rationale. That, that there's a, a malicious intent that knows it has a limited time to carry it out. And so it takes all it can. There's no long-term rationale to it. There's no, I'm doing this to store up something. And that's why the, the perspective of faith always goes the other direction. It always, why Jesus said, it's not, Jesus wanted the kings of the world. He knew how to get them to die on the cross. And now he's given the name above every other name because the devil, the dragon always lies when he promises you something. So he's given um, the, be- the sea beast his, his you know, power, but he, he has only limited a power. He, he can do it for a while. And even that will fit within God's purpose. Um, and, and also one other thing about the sea creatures at Tanim, Jeremiah 51:34, Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler of Babylon that destroyed uh, the Old Testament temple, is called a Tanim. Uh, and also Pharaoh is also called um, uh, Ezekiel 29:3 and 32:2 and Jeremiah 51:34 for references where this Tanim sea beast is associated with earthly persecutors of God's people. What's that? A T-A-N-I-M. In Hebrew, the I-M is an E-M. We'd say tanim, but it used in Hebrew that E-I-M is an E-M. Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. Pharaoh and, and so and the, the, the verses are Ezekiel twenty nine three, Ezekiel thirty two two, and that's Pharaoh, and then Jeremiah fifty one thirty four, where Nebuchadnezzar is called a Tanim. Now, the, the, these beasts, these bear and leopard, this gets us back to Daniel chapter 7, and really all of Daniel. So, um, to read the book of Daniel uh, is to understand that Daniel gets visions, and he gets visions of kingdoms, which in the sort of traditional interpretation are understood to be um, four kingdoms. Uh, the, the Babylonian that destroyed the temple, uh, the Medo-Persian that conquered the Babylonians, the Greek Empire of Alexander the Great that conquered uh, uh, them, and then Rome. And Rome is portrayed, even the fourth kingdom in Daniel is even portrayed as a, hid, a, a beast more hideous than all the others. And so here, when he has these parts of the beast that Daniel mentions, but he's more hideous, this kind of identifies him with the fourth, fourth beast of Daniel. But this is, I just want to highlight that this imagery is deeply rooted in Daniel, you go especially chapter 7, verses 2 through 7, which means that Rome surpassed the previous beasts in its beastliness, in its subhuman rule. So, verse 3, And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, given authority to continue for 42 months. So th- this is a verse that, that a lot of Revelation commentaries run amok with. There was a, a tradition that um, Nero, who was killed, would come back to life because he was such a horrible guy. It was a, but I don't think that's what this is referring to because Revelation is, is really trafficking in biblical imagery. And if you have a beast with a head wound, 
there's one place you have to go to begin with it, and that's Genesis 3.15, where we are told in Genesis 3.15. So the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, more than every beast. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is the spiritual battle that got brought out actually in Revelation 12. The woman clothed with the sun, then the dragon, ready to eat her children or child, the male child. Between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In the New Testament, in one passage in Romans, it is used as the idea that, we, that in Christ we can crush Satan under our feet with an image of victory in battle. But so the seed of the woman wounding the head of the serpent is the pretty obvious horizon for this idea that um, that the that he had a mortal head wound, his wound was healed. Now, how do we get that wound was healed? Okay, let's let's, let's think about in the Bible's own language. Um, when was Satan defeated? When? The cross. The cross. So on the cross, Jesus delivers a mortal head wound. But does does it look like he's been, is he cowering away? Well, but the, the power of evil comes back. And, and, and so the fact is that it, it looks as though that Jesus defeated evil. It doesn't look like that happened. It looks as though evil was triumphant. And then it carries on and, and it begins to persecute the church. So even though the, the dragon is a defeated enemy, he still he has the appearance of still having power. So the marvel of, though cosmically he's, been, he's received a mortal head wound, it looks as though he's been healed and carries on. How does how does it happen that Jesus establishes kingdom, eternal kingdom, in the middle of the kingdom of the beast, but the beast continues to rule? And that's that's I think the the imagery that this is is dealing with. Well, he um, Jacob grabbed uh, Esau's heel on the way out of the birth canal, planting him, but I don't... Although Edom does have some historical association with, with, with evil, because Esau becomes Edom, and, and, and that the word means red, which is a lot of the image of the, you know, the, the devil is dressed in red, you know, all that kind of stuff. There's a lot of, there's just, what you have to understand when we're reading the scriptures, we're, we're trafficking in, in archetypes and symbols and things that have resonance and depth, sometimes across cultures, and the Bible picks up on this, as with the, with the, with the sea monsters. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> so they worshipped him, who is like the beast, because here, you know, it looks like, even though God defeated him, it doesn't look like it. Who say will make war with him? He was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. He was given authority to continue for 42 months. Now, 42 months, as we discussed last time, means a significant but temporal reign. It's not a seven. Seven is the reign of God. So it's 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 limited. You know, a significant time, not not no damage, but but limited, and it will be cut short. And we should note that, therefore, in what I'm saying about the the, the victory, chapter 12 of Revelation gave us the heavenly reality of the defeat. But often, the earthly reality doesn't look like the heavenly one. 
which is why as Christians this book is so important to us, because it tells us what it looks like from God's standpoint. And when we are living in Christ, seated in the heavenlies, understanding our prayers are being heard, understanding that evil has been defeated, even though we may experience some pain, we can hold on to that triumph because we see, we are told with John to come up here and we, we have eyes to see that this is the reality. Whereas if you only have eyes to see earthly things, you think God's losing. Maybe that's why it says, blessed are you who read this book. And be blessed. Especially if we understand what it's talking about. <laughs> it, it's, 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 it, it's also that there's a paradox here that I think we, we have to learn, I think, to translate these biblical gospel themes into the narratives of our own life. So, what do I mean by that? Um, it, things didn't look very good on Good Friday for the cause. But we are very, very close to the victory. Things don't always look so good in our lives. But we never know what God is doing. If we stay in our prayer, we intercede with him and maintain, we have the promise that God's going to justify. He's going to come. Because we know. So this is why when people, this is really the great caution about getting yourself, you know, neck deep in the papers, the media, and the world, and the news. It's all catastrophe. It may be from the standpoint of the world, but it's not from the kingdom. The kingdom is always hopeful because we never know what God is doing. Jesus is Lord. This word, I mean, that's what we're believing here. I want to be clear about that, that Jesus is Lord. He's actually in control of all this. And there may be some powers that get 42 months, but they don't go beyond his purview. That's the enduring lesson of this. And we have, the main thing we have to be careful not to do is act unrighteously in response to that and, and, and therefore be dragged into the judgment that's coming on the beast. That's the whole point here. Um, And from the standpoint of the um, of the uh, of the Jewish people, there's nothing in Jesus' triumph that seemed to say he was the Son of God because they didn't save him from him, them from Rome. So, who can conquer the beast? Not him. Okay, the beast. So that fits the narrative there. There's also a note: the 42 months uh, roughly corresponds to Nero's intense persecution of the church from 64 A.D. Uh, to 68. So there's that. Then he opened his mouth, this is the beast, in blasphemy against God, to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. His tabernacle is the scene we saw in 4 and 5, where Angels and archangels, the 24 elders, where we live because we've been raised up in baptism through faith and seated in the heavenly places in the true tabernacle. From John's standpoint, that's where we dwell. So when he says, rejoice, you dwell in heaven, but woe to you inhabitants of the earth, even though we, you know, we're on the ground here, that's the true place of our residence. It was granted to him, verse 7, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Notice that. It was granted to him. Sometimes God allows things that are painful. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Whose names have not been written in the book of the life of the Lamb. Book of Life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Notice that language. 
thrown in there. The book, uh, the Lamb's Book of Life, the Lamb who's slain, not from 2,000 years ago, but from the foundation of the world. So this is is in the plan of God from the very beginning to, to, to know how to conquer because nothing escapes his. Um, and that's the sovereignty of God that we know about in our suffering, that where the devil has but a short time and with wrath and he has to get it in, we have eternity. The life we have doesn't end, even if it, if it is, even if because somebody's called to martyrdom, it ends temp- temporally. That's the, that's the contrast being brought out here. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with a sword must be killed with a sword. Here is the patience and faith of the saints. It should be noted, as I sent out in the notes, that this is a direct quote from Jeremiah um, 15.2. Such as for death to death, such as for the sword to the sword. Such as So when he's talking about... Um, and when we hear the word earth here, we should think more about land and, 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 and localize this message really to the, the earth, the, 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 the heavens and earth, the creation is the land in which God's people dwell, that covenant relationship. So all who dwell within his covenant historically are going to be deceived in worship, and this is why judgment is coming. Because their names have not been written in the book of life. But here's the patience and faith of the saints. Endurance, patience, steadfastness, continuing on in prayer and faithfulness. This is one of the ideas, too, of the liturgical life of the church. Um, that that you, you continue in this liturgy of union with God in the heavenlies in the midst of these changes here, and that's the life that has been years. Verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, out of reed, maybe lamb. And he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. This gives our hint of its being Israel, because it's supposed to be lamb-like. Um, but it, in fact, it's beastly. So it, it, it looks uh, what we what, what Jesus called wear wolves in sheep's clothing. It looks to represent God, but in fact, it's not anymore. And this is, we want to be clear about this, that the New Testament, the Gospels mean what they mean. There was a rejection of Jesus as the Son of God. And therefore, nobody can continue in a religion that that openly rejects that and have that be God's covenant. Now, I want to be clear here that historically the you know there's been some anti-Semitism rooted in this the Jews killed Jesus idea. And we 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 are not suggesting that every Jewish person of every generation is culpable in the same way as the generation that saw him is. So I'll be clear about that. Uh, but but that's what this, but that was a culpable thing. And for us, in in our sense of how the gospel goes out in the world, when somebody encounters that truth and willfully and openly says, "No, I won't," that's a culpable thing. And you can't say, I'm worshiping God and reject the one who now is Lord of all. So he has two horns like a lamb, spoke like a dragon, and he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Now, lest you think, okay, you're calling this Jewish worship demonic, but let's just rewind the tape back to Revelation 2. I'll make those who who, who, are, who are the synagogue of Satan, the risen Christ, 
call the local synagogues that are persecuting the early church synagogues of Satan, and talked about the place where Satan dwells. And so this whole idea of the conspiracy throughout the world, and especially as the reach of this went out into Asia Minor and Greece, of the conspiracy locally between the privileged place the Jewish synagogue had under the auspices of Rome, and used that collusion to hand over believers, which means that what are you worshiping then? No matter what you say, no matter how many times you say Adonai or Yahweh, it doesn't matter. Which should sober us too, as Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, we have to make sure that we're listening to the word and actually doing what he calls us to do, which is an ongoing challenge in our lives. Performs great signs that even makes fire come down from heaven on earth inside of men. Um, that's kind of uh, like uh, Elijah did that in this con- in his in his contest uh, barbecue contest with the prophets of Baal. Um, and then Jesus, this harkens to. Uh, a verse in Matthew that uh, where, where, where um, Jesus says, Matthew 24, 30, 23, 24, where he says, uh, and, and false prophets will arise so that if it were possible, they would even deceive the elect. So the idea that, that people performing signs symbolized by the, the Elijah-like powers. But if those signs are used to bear witness something that's Jesus is Messiah and Lord, they're false. I never hear you. Yeah, I mean, there's there's this, uh, you know, God God can work in a lot of places, even when the people are doing the work. There's a, um, actually an article of religion in the Book of Common Prayer that deals with this, uh, uh, a doctrine that came up in what was in the early church known as the Donatist heresy, St. Augustine principally responded to, and and where where, where um, the, the heresy was, a pure church heresy, that is, that, that held that somebody ministering could only be effective if their hearts and lives were pure. And, and so that one of the things that came up with, if people during persecution had renounced their faith, the Donatists didn't want to let them back. And the church said, no. You... And, and there's always, so, so that the article of religion says that the unworthiness of the minister hindereth not the grace of the sacrament. And that was the doctrine of the church. And so, so it's, and it's true, whether it be the sacrament or even the preaching of the word, you might hear a preacher whose life is completely compromised, yet he says something that you hear the word and you're led to repentance, God's working through it. That doesn't mean, you know, that doesn't mean he is, 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 a, is but, but God, because God's sovereign over all. And so that's, um, that's why we sometimes, I think this is helpful, it's been helpful for me at least to realize, because I think we like to control things. Okay, we're doing this. No. Pray about it, do what you're supposed to do, let God take care of that. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beasts, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the beast who was wounded by the sword and live. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, 
that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And this is the idea, you have a sense here of a faux resurrection. Again, I think that the, the, the backdrop narrative is that the powers of evil have been defeated, including the power of Rome, but, but they have a, 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 an appearance of power that's able to persecute. He was granted power to give breath. Verse 16, he caused all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. Now, this is clearly the complement to what happened to the elect in chapter 7. Do not harm the earth and the sea until I seal the servants of God on their forehead. So the idea is that you're, you're, you're worshiping um, the Christ to set his apart, and there's now a division, and he was not for me is against me. And the whole idea of um, that none may buy or sell except the one who has the mark or the name or the beast or the number of his name. And... Of course, in, in the dispensationalist stuff, that was always going to be, we're going to have a chip imprinted in our hands. Or, or, uh, uh, but here it is that the early Christians uh, were cut off from the economic life of Israel when they were shunned from the synagogues. And this, this is, and, and that um, even early Christians, uh, in the pagan world, because they couldn't um, trade guilds often met in pagan temples, and often would participate in 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 at least eat some of the meat off of the idols. It may not have been formal worship. That's part of what. St. Paul is alluding to in his conversations in Corinthians about can you eat idol meat or not. So if you were going to not compromise yourself in that way, there's always going to be a cutoff from the economic gain of the system that controls it. And this is a big thing for us, I think, in our time, too, because, you know, the, the, the Christian faith ought not to participate in economic activity that is compromised. And... That's a, a complex thing in our time, but it's a reality. But when he says this, this is the point is being a Christian, cut yourself off from acceptance in the, the economy surrounding Israel, the economy surrounding the Roman world, because you weren't going and, and paying the necessary homage to the local God, which the Romans thought is what made the world work. And so when you refuse to sacrifice to the idols, um, you are called an atheist by some. You don't believe in the gods. So this is, I think, the, the backdrop for you can't buy or sell without the mark of the beast. You have to give in to this. You have to make the offering. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. There's a number of a man. His number is 666. Lots of stuff have been um, uh, written about this. But it, in, in the biblical numerology, it's, it's pretty significant that it's six and, again, not seven. And the idea is that it's, it's um, the human being exalting himself to the extent of the sixness, but never getting to the seven, the rest. And remember our Lord on the cross, um, when he says it is finished, completes the work of the covenant and extends, therefore, um, into the rest. He achieves the rest. And in Christ, we enter into the rest, into the seven. And then in, in the beginning of the first day of the new week of the new creation. But, but the number of the beast is 666. He's stuck in his sixness. Um, 
the um, there's an interesting um, man is created on the sixth day. Uh, interesting biblical reference, First uh, Samuel seventeen four, Goliath. Uh, uh, six cubits in a span. His spear was six hundred shekels of iron. Um, Solomon. This is a inter- very interesting verse. Uh, Deuteron- um, excuse me. First Kings ten fourteen receives six hundred sixty six talents of gold as tribute. And that comes after the passage that says that Solomon had broken the laws of kingship put out in Deuteronomy 17. You're not supposed to make alliances. You're not supposed to increase wives. So Solomon epitomizes. Solomon becomes a little bit beastly because he rules like a pagan king and not like God. Yes. Yeah, I mean that's that's a moral that's an ongoing moral discussion for each of us to think about and talk about. There's you know it's it's clearly I don't think it's any different for us than it was for them. You know, we have to figure out how we can keep a, keep a clean conscience and and certainly at the, in the first instance with what we do, doing good works for the glory of God, not not compromising, being aware of its impact on people and things like this. But it's it's a challenge. Um, it's also interesting in this uh, beast from the sea, beast from the land um, thing that in the Bible, um, there's behemoth is the, is, is the beast from the land. Um, he's mentioned. So there's a land beast and a sea beast in the mythology of the Bible. I'm not prepared to go any further with that. But we have we do now with this beast, Sea beast, Rome, land beast, false, false Israel, false religion. Our trinity is complete. The dragon, the sea beast, the land beast. Um, verse um, the father, the son is the image of the father. You remember the Rome bore the image of the dragon. The son is the perfect image of the father. And then the the, the, the sort of religious apparatus of church, angels, bishops, prophets, who call people to worship the one true God in the way that now this pet chapter is suggesting that apostate Israel is calling the world to worship beasts. So you have that parallel. Um, purposely being made. And therefore, when you see... Um, even the, the, the whore of Babylon on the back of the beast in the subsequent chapters, she'll have a chalice. Does she have a chalice? Because she's calling people into communion uh. with, with the beast through complicity with Rome, okay. whereas the, 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 the true ministry of church is calling people into communion with the Father through communion with the Son. Okay, move on to 14. A lot here, but I wouldn't expect anyone, again, going through this to understand it all. I mean, I've been a fan of this book for a few decades. Each time through, I see new stuff. What you just want to do is pick up something helpful. <laughs> don't, don't feel like you're supposed to memorize it all. It is such an interesting thing when you share about the false trinity, when we think about it in those terms. You know, the evil one loves to give. There's this parallel, there's false and there's true, and it's, yeah, it's really amazing looking at Yes. So then we get the hero, verse 14, chapter 14. Then I looked and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having the Father's name written on their foreheads. Right back to chapter 7, 144,000. 
symbolic number for the fullness of Israel. That's what we are told in chapter 7, which also includes a multitude which no man can number of all people, nations, tribes, and tongues. So this is a symbolic. Um, um, and I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters, like the voice of loud thunder. I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. And they sang as it were a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. That no one And no one can learn the song except the 144,000 who redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Now, first of all, we should understand that this is an image directly from Psalm 2. Um, We just quote a verse, you can look into it more. But um, in Psalm 2, it talks about the nations plotting against uh, the Lord and the king's ruler taking counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let's break their bonds asunder, cast away their cords from us. And then Psalm 2 says, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord will have them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Lo, I look to be all the lamb standing on Mount Zion. And uh, this is my, and the Lord is, this is where we get out. We get, we chant this, this from Psalm 2 on Christmas. Uh, the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And it goes and it says, now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. So this whole 13-14 drama is right from Psalm 2. The beasts in the sea, the beasts in the land, plotting to destroy God's people, but God is my king. Um, new song, which is a, in the Bible, a new liturgy required for a new condition, coronation, the redemption. We sing a new song in Christ, and no one else can know it because they don't know that redemption. It's not like a specific wording. It is a new themed song. Uh, Psalm 43, 96.1, and 149.1 all talk about singing a new song results from the new work of God. Virgin Israel. They were, they were undefiled with women for they are virgins. We have to be careful here to understand the symbolism here. It's not really talking about sex. Um, virgin Israel was unfaithful. Jeremiah 14, 17 says that. Uh, but the promise is that she'll be purified. St. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 11, 2. I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. That included married people. Um, so we've washed our robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, Revelation 7:14. The purity, therefore, is what God has made us to be in Christ, not a natural. Uh, and that's it's it's the bridal imagery because we're He's the bridegroom and the church is the bride. This whole idea of being without. Um, fall before the throne of God. It's a little daunting until he realizes just common New Testament language. The 1 Thessalonians 3.13, 523, 2 Peter 3.14. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. 
St. Paul is saying this is how the church stands. Um, as we say in the liturgy, there are sinful bodies maybe made cleaner, our souls washed. And we maintain this state by persevering faith and persevering repentance. This aware, willing to look at. Oh, I see that. You can, and, and the thing that makes us blameworthy is when we reject the word of God for some area of our lives and don't grow in that repentance. So this is just language. The, 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 the virgins are just language right out of the New Testament. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, verse 6, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him. The hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of the water. The false gospel, dragon, sea beast, land beast, calling people to worship the dragon to compromise with the with uh, and here is the everlasting gospel proclaim worship God only and 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 this is epitomized in the church who's, who has that message to proclaim to the whole world and then verse 8 and this is significant because it's very biblical Another angel follows, saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Her fornication is she's betrothed to God, but she's in communion with the powers of the dragon. And she's drawn into it. Her vocation, Israel's vocation, was to be a light to light in the Gentiles. And instead, she has she has been overcome by that. Now he's saying Babylon has fallen, and this is an illusion. To, this is a narrative shift, because now Israel, old covenant Israel, is outside of the covenant. Is 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 in is is is, is, is complicit with the powers of evil, and now is likened to Babylon. They're going to be judged. But he claims is fallen, even though Revelation is written probably before the actual destruction. This is the way biblical prophecy works. It is this way. You may not see it yet, but it is this way. Jesus is Lord. You may not see it yet, but it is this way. So, so, so just no sooner have we seen these horrible beasts than we have the proclamation of the king, who rules over it all, and the promise that this is all this is all falling. It has 42 months. Then the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image, and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Dark contrast. He was not with me as against me. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night who worship the beast in his image, who never receives the mark of his name. Since the gospel has been proclaimed that God has spoken to his son, those who do not respond will be judged. This is not for us to determine who has made that final, but it's for us to determine that this is the gospel. Here is the patience of the saints, verse 12. Here are those who keep the commandments of God, the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Very important. The devil has a short time because his works, his works follow the judgment. But righteousness follows us into a reward beyond their remembered. 
St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That what we have, Jesus said, lay up yourself treasures in heaven, for neither moth nor rust doth corrupt. This is the idea that the witness, the memory of what we do in Christ endures, whereas unfaithfulness just has the moment, has nothing more. Then I looked and behold a white cloud, and on the cloud one like the Son of Man, and on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. So the Lamb stands out. This image of judge gets back to Daniel chapter 7. We already looked at that passage in depth, Daniel 7, 13, 14, and he has a, a sharp sickle. Another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. Who you sat on the cloud, thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, who had the power over fire. And he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine from the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. For the angel thrust in his sickle on the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and the blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles, blood, blood for 1,600 furlongs. So here the image of, of, of salvation, the lamb on his mountain with his redeemed who were saved, becomes the image of the son of man, the judge. Um, this whole winepress imagery also um, would, uh, Isaiah uh, 63, 3 and 4, I have the winepress alone, and from the people no one was with me. I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. We're uncomfortable, I think, with this vengeful imagery, but there's something that we have to remember, that evil is a reality. And I think one of the problems in the, in the modern world, that is sort of enlightenment on, is, the, is this idea that People are basically good. There's, there's no, you know, I think it's why, like, someone like, you know, uh, when somebody really, when evil really surfaces itself, like it has in certain places like Ukraine, you know, in, in visible ways, um, what is this? Well, this is, you know, evil must be judged. And so when we pray to God for vindication, he's going to vindicate those who are his, <clears throat> the that there has to be those who are not vindicated, and, and that is the just judgments of God. The patience of God is that he waits. He's giving people an opportunity to repent. Lamentations 1.15. The Lord has trampled underfoot all my mighty men in my midst. He has called an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord trampled, as in a winepress, the virgin daughter of Zion. Lamentations is, is, by tradition, Jeremiah's lament over the destruction of Jerusalem in the Old Testament. But I guess I'm, what I'm highlighting for you is this winepress language is, is not new. I think what's kind of new here in the extent of blood is the finishing of the judgment on the unfaithfulness of the old covenant people. This is a judgment that's going to be finalized now. Because the because the old covenant age is now over. And we're beginning, this is the dawn of the new covenant age, symbolized by a new heavens and a new earth. The people of God worship in his holy of holies and temple, <clears throat> so that the worship of the people of God on earth connects to that. It's no longer in this 
old covenant place that is now judged. Seven seventy and perfect. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, th- I think that's. I think that's. I mean, I think it's it's clearly. I think in context, meaning to to focus on what happens to Jerusalem, but. Bible prophecy always has these horizons. I mean, we take a prophecy that uh, the virgin will conceive a bear a son, you'll call his name Emmanuel. You go read Isaiah, and that has to refer to a child born while Isaiah was alive, and yet it has another horizon. So the idea that, that these themes, and they're pretty timeless themes here, like what? What does corrupted religion look like? It looks like religion that compromises with secular power for gain, for its own preservation. And so the, the thematic element of this endures on continually for us to be aware of. And that's why we, we always have to patiently endure. Uh, and, and, and so, I, so I, I think if we localize it, you know, clearly it's talking about this end of the old covenant age. But it, as we noticed, in, there's an enduring prophetic message for the church, because if you remember back in the letters to the churches, there were messages like, um, this I have against you. you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, unfaithful woman. So the church has to be constantly vigilant about, against this. The difference is that the this age of, of the kingdom, the, of the this last days, in the church, that that covenant is not ending. People could be judged unworthy of continuing in it. But the final thing here is the old covenant age is over, and we're in the new covenant. There, and then then so judgment will be being faithful to the to the stipulations of the new covenant might leave peoples and churches on the margins of that. So the message endures like that. Yes, we got through. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's pray. Lord, bless us and keep us. The Lord, make his face to shine upon us, be gracious unto us. The Lord, lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace this day and forevermore. Thanks for being with us, Constance, Ruth, Rhonda. I don't know if anyone was, was uh, hidden with us. No, no hidden, no hidden participants.